0: Ephesians chapter four, I want to tonight uh, speak on, Lord's laid on my heart, to speak on endeavoring to keep the unity, endeavoring to keep the unity. Unity is very important in our church. If you've been around our church for a little while, you know this is a topic that has been discussed a lot. But the truth is, God cannot pour out his blessings on our church if we're not unified. One of the main ways that the devil destroys churches is by creating disunity among its members. And it'll take a, disunity will take a church that was strong, once strong, a Bible-believing church, and cause it to be destroyed. And what we have to do is we have to do what Ephesians 4, verse 3 says, and that is endeavor to keep the unity. You know, unity among believers is a big deal in the Bible. If you've read the Bible At any in any length, you'll see that unity is important. Paul addresses, just to kind of give you a background of this passage, I'll get into the passage and read it here in a second, but Paul addresses unity in the first three chapters of Ephesians, arguing that God's eternal purpose is to gather together in one all things in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 10 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven which are on earth, even in him. And in these first three chapters of Ephesians, which we don't have time to obviously go through, Paul shows the mystery of the gospel that it includes God bringing together two formerly alienated and hostile groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. He's made them into one new man. If you read in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, You'll see that he talks about how he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He brings together these two hostile groups, that is, God does, and, and makes them one new man, establishing peace. In Christ, both groups have access in one spirit to the Father. We see that in verse 18 of chapter 2. And then Paul ends the cha- chapter 3 by praying that the Ephesian Christians would be rooted in And grounded in love so that they could comprehend with all saints the infinite love of Christ and be unified. Because if you look in verse chapter four, it says, I therefore, and I won't give you the whole ditty that we always hear. You know what the there is, therefore is therefore. You got to find out, right? It's hard for me not to say it because I've heard it so many times drilled into my head. I just said I wasn't going to do it and I did it. Um, But you have to look at what was before. And all the time before, as in almost all his epistles, Paul's laying the, the foundation, the doctrinal foundation, and then he builds on that foundation with practical application. And that's what we see in verses, or chapters 4 through 6. Chapter 4 begins with that word, therefore. And so chapters 4 through 6 are going to show specifically how the church brings glory to God and to Christ by being Unified, You know, it's important that we understand this doctrinal foundation of unity before we make practical application. Sound doctrine must always be the foundation for godly living. Here's the application to that. If you focus on doctrine to the exclusion of practical application, you will stunt your growth and become arrogant. I've seen those people. They know all the doctrine, they never apply it to their lives, and they're arrogant. But then on the other hand, if you focus on practical application without the doctrinal foundation, you will easily fall into superficial Christianity. You need both. What you believe affects how you behave. And Paul is laying the foundation in chapters 1 through 3 of this idea of unity. And in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to apply it. And so in our text, we see Paul tells us three things that we must be doing to be unified. Let's read those first three verses. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. Forbearing one another in love. And then here is this idea of endeavoring, uh, verse 3 of chapter 4. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity to get up here and preach your word. Lord, I don't take this as a light thing. It's a great responsibility to stand behind this pulpit with your word, and I pray you'd help me now as I preach, Lord, that I would only say what you would have me to say. Holy Spirit, take the word of God and apply it to all of our hearts, Lord. You have a way of, Holy Spirit, you have a way of doing that. You can take every, everything that's said tonight and apply, apply it in many different ways to many different hearts. And we thank you for that, and we ask you to do that. Hide me behind the cross tonight. And, Lord, I pray that we'd hear from you. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there's three things we need to do in order to be unified. First of all, we see in verse number one, to be unified, we must understand its importance. In other words, we must understand that unity is important. It says there in verse number one of chapter four, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Verse one is like a topic sentence that governs the rest of the epistle. And specifically this chapter. Paul gives three reasons why unity is important here. He says, first of all, in this, that it is important because Christ suffered for it. Really, he said that even before chapter four, as I already said, but Christ suffered for unity. Just before he went to the cross, if you were to examine the high priestly prayer, as we have um, called it in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, you'll see that Jesus prayed for all who would believe to be one. To be unified. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 13 through 18, as I already mentioned, Paul spells it out. It was through the cross. It was through Christ who was our, our peace that he broke down the middle wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles and brought them together in one, thus establishing peace. This unity is really not something that we have to work understand what I mean here. We don't have to work to achieve it or attain it. Christ has already given us, brought us together. Christ is, through his salvation, has given us unity and peace. We don't have to do anything for it. Christ died to bring unity. Unity should be a natural outflow of Christians who are saved and walking in the spirit. Let me show you from the scripture what, why I say that. First Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For by one spirit... Are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit? Christ died for unity. But because we're fallen, because we're sinful people, we have to endeavor to keep the unity. Our flesh gets in the way. And even though Christ died to bring unity, Christians bring death to the church Because of disunity, we have to be careful not to allow our flesh to bring disunity. So therefore, unity is crucial. Not only is unity important because Christ suffered for it, but we see here Paul suffered for it. He says, I therefore the prisoner. Not only did Christ suffer to bring peace and unity, but Paul also suffered for peace and unity. He says that he was the prisoner of the Lord. Paul opened even, if you look at chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he said, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And if you study the life of Paul, and he studied specifically in Acts chapter 21, I don't have time to go there. I'm sure pastor will get to it at some point in his study on Acts. But Acts chapter 21, Paul was in prison because the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem had started a riot By falsely accusing Paul of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish section of the temple. And Paul was willing to suffer for the truth that the Gentiles were fellow members of the body of Christ because he understood that it was God's eternal purpose that he was going to gather together in one all things in Christ. Christ has made both the Jews and Gentiles bond and free, one in Christ. But you know, sadly, down through the history of the church, the, the church has remained unified when it should be divided. And it's been divided when it should have remained unified. Let me, let me help you understand what I mean by that. It has remained unified when it should have been divided because when professing Christians deny the gospel, deny the cardinal doctrines of the faith and tolerate sins that the Bible condemns, there needs to be division, not unity. Unity. But on the other hand, there have been many sad divisions in the church over very minor matters where unity should have been preserved. Often these divisions that I'm talking about, these minor matters, stem from personality conflicts or matters of opinion on which the Scripture is not precisely clear. Now, I realize that there are difficult issues where godly Christians differ. But unity among Christians is a big deal. We should not divide over minor issues. And let me say, where there are differences, this is what we should do, where there are differences over difficult issues, where the Bible is not precisely clear, we need to stop. We need to pray. We need to read Romans 14. Actually, you can start in Romans 12 and read all the way through Romans 14. And allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. Because the Bible says he's going to do that anyway. John 16, verse 13 says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. We should keep unity in the church, but not at the expense of God's word. But that does not give us the right to be prideful, arrogant, and irrational when speaking about things that are not precisely clear in God's word. And furthermore, if there are things that are true in God's word, that God condemns through his word, we ought to do it in love with the humble spirit. Because Ephesians 4 and Matthew 7 are still in the Bible. Both of those are important. Ephesians 4.15 says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him, into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. And Matthew 7, basically the first seven or eight verses, I can't remember exactly which specific verses, but that first part of that chapter talks about judging. And it does not condemn judging entirely. It condemns hypocritical, prideful, arrogant judging. And then take Romans into account. We, got, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And that, by the way, this is a sideboard, it's not even in my notes, but that's why I love Pastor Brooks because Pastor Brooks has a level head. Amen. And he thinks about things. He reads God's word, he prays, and he doesn't just fly off the handle and start doing things like some people do. And I won't start naming certain groups and all that. Okay? But just we have to be careful. Because the pendulum can swing this way, but you better believe that pendulum can go all the way back that way. And either of them are not good. We need wisdom. We need balance. I thought balance was a bad word at one point, but it's not. It's called godly wisdom. That's really what balance is. And having a level head. So it's important not only because Christ and Paul suffered for it, but thirdly, it's important because we're called to it. Unity is important because we're called to it. Look at verses, verse 1 again. It says that we, he, Paul beseeches us, beseech you, I beseech you, that ye walk worthy. Of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Vocation. Paul pleads that we walk worthy, worthy of our vocation. Now, vocation here refers not to a job on this earth, but rather as Christians, our vocation refers to our salvation, our gospel calling. You know, I don't look at my job here at the school specifically as a job, I look at it as a calling. You know why? Because if it was a job, I would have quit. (laughs) Bless the the students' hearts, but um, I would have quit. But God called me, not only to the ministry, but God called me specifically to this church and to this school, and I'm going to stay here until God calls me somewhere else. And I'm really hoping I don't, you know, I want to do God's will, but I'm hoping I can stay here for a while. But, you know, we, we have jobs, right? You know, you all have jobs. And while you don't really want to quit your job, sometimes you feel like it. And maybe you just do. Maybe we won't go there, but um, maybe you just quit your job because you just got tired of the people. I'm sure that happens, happens or you are tempted, but this is a calling. It's, it's, it's really in connection to Christ's call to us in the New Testament. There's so many verses, and I, I, had to, I cut a lot of stuff out of this, and I might still be cutting stuff out as I go, but... 2 Timothy 1.9 talks about this calling. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You can even look at Romans 8, 29 and 30, and you'll see God has called us, called us to this gospel calling. Why should we be unified? It's because we've been called to it. we, We ought to walk worthy. What does worthy have the idea of? It has the idea of a weight being balanced on a scale. Think of a scale. And and the idea is on one side is the glorious gospel of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus. And on the other side is our godly conduct that should match the calling to the gospel, especially in the loving behavior that brings unity. We ought to make sure, in other words, like Pastor Pastor DeGarmo has said, that our in Philippians 1.27, that our conversation be as it becometh the gospel. We ought to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. And there's other passages we can look at. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.10 also talks about that. So we see to be unified, we must understand its importance. It's important because Christ suffered for it. It's important because Paul suffered for it. And it's important, unity is important because we are called to it. But secondly, we see not only to be unified, we must understand its importance, but secondly, we need to, in verse 2, to be unified, we must practice its qualities. And this is where I really want to kind of stress and, and stay a little while. I, I went through the other very quickly, and I apologize if I lost you in all the introduction and everything I said, but I want to go quickly through that so I could get to really the crux of, this, of the message tonight. And that is practicing qualities that bring unity. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is a long life, long life process. Pastor DeGarmo and I were talking about that today. Just a, a lifelong thing that we have to learn how to walk like Christ walked. How to work with people like Christ worked with people. How to deal with people. And it's, it's going to be a lifelong thing. So if you're expecting the uh, throw it in the microwave, hit the number one and nuke it for about a minute and be done. It ain't going to happen. Pardon my grammar. Um, There's going to be setbacks. But the overall pattern of this walk should be one of growth. One of growth in all of these qualities we're going to look at. Instead of walking in the flesh, we must walk in the spirit to grow in these qualities. And these qualities we'll look at tonight will bring unity in our church if practiced. But if neglected, if we neglect these qualities, it's going to bring disunity. So what are these qualities? There's five of them listed. The first one is humility. To be unified, we need humility. Paul uses the, phrase, the word in verse two. So verse two says, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. With all lowliness. He uses the word lowliness. It means humbleness of mind. Of course, it is the opposite of pride. And let me just say, Pride is at the root of every sin. Let me say that again. Pride is at the root of every sin. Pride is the number one enemy of unity. And some Christians, some many Christians, I say, and that sounds very uh, grammatically incorrect, but um, sorry for not running grammarly on this before I um, started preaching it. But many Christians allow pride to cause disunity. You know, pride is a very subtle sin. It can creep into our lives without even knowing it. I'll say this, that a Christian can even be prideful while obeying God's word. I've been there. I obeyed God's word, and all the while I knew I was doing it just so everybody could look at me. Look at me. And God smote my heart. Praise God for His grace and His conviction. But pride is a very subtle thing. Humility is the recognition that all we are and all we have is because of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Philippians 2, 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. First Peter 5, 5, Be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humility is being Christ-sufficient, not self-sufficient. The pride person trusts in himself. He thinks that he can do it. You often hear people say, uh, you got... You've got to believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. No, the humble person doesn't believe in himself. The humble person trusts in Christ. Because there's nothing good. And that humble person knows if he believes in himself, he will be a, a big failure. And second, the humble person recognizes that God has graciously given him certain abilities that he's going to then use for his honor and glory. And his purposes. So that we can say with Paul, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of, as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. We need hum- humility. And let me say, a lot of times this pride causes Christians to do and act in certain ways that brings disunity. And we need to be careful. All of us need to be careful. No matter where you are, you need to be careful with pride. Because as soon as you think you're not prideful, you've just opened the door for the devil to walk right into your life. I've been there too. You know, it's, again, that pendulum, I know I'm using that illustration a lot, but man, if you're not careful, that pendulum goes all the way this way, and that pendulum can go all the way the other way. You have to be careful. Be humble. To be unified, we need to be have humility. We need humility, but to be unified, we need meekness. Now, when I say meekness, I don't know what you think of, but a lot of times we think of it, meekness as being a feminine quality or a sign of weakness. Now, I would say that maybe ladies are a little more meek than men, but I think there are some ladies that can hold their own, and they can, you know, they don't, you know, they're pretty strong. Um, but really meekness is not a feminine quality. Christ was meek. Okay? He Matthew 11, I believe it is, talks about how he was meek. Really meekness is the idea of strength under control. It pictures a person who controls his temper and doesn't retaliate or seek revenge. Secular writers use it to describe tamed animals. You know, you think of a horse. A horse is powerful. But a tamed horse is still a powerful animal, but that horse is completely obedient to the tug of the master on the reins. He brings his strength under control. Now, Jesus was tender when, was, when he was bru- bruised and broken, but he was strong and forceful with the proud, self-righteous Pharisees. Christ was both. He was our perfect example, and, the, and we ought to, while we can't be perfect, we ought to seek to be that kind of a person, a meek person, strong enough to confront sin, but also strong enough to bring healing. That's another thing that a lot of times Christians don't want to do. They, wanna, they want to lamb blast and confront sin, but never bring healing. They don't want to bring restoration. As soon as somebody goes off the deep end, as we would say, they just want to let them, just kick them while they're down. Just land blast them. Let me remind you what Galatians 6 1 says. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, what does it say? Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We need to be willing to not only confront sin when it's necessary, Again, back to what I, don't forget, as I tell my students, everything I said before is very important. It builds upon itself. Don't forget what I said. We need to stop. We need to pray. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us if we do feel like we need to confront sin, things that are clearly taught in God's word. But we need to also bring healing, bring restoration. Seek for that person to come back. 2 Timothy 2:25 2, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. This doesn't give us though this whole idea of meekness and being strong enough to confront sin but strong enough to bring healing especially the idea of being strong enough to confront sin it doesn't give us the license to go around being belligerent about confronting sin. We need to be careful. We first need as Matthew 7 says we need to examine ourselves. We need to pray and prayerfully and humbly go talk to that person. But I think we, our flesh, maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. You're all pretty quiet tonight, but that's okay. I've learned that quiet doesn't always mean that you're not getting it. So I'm just going to go on. But, um, yeah, because it it won't help me any if I worry about that. I'm just going to preach. But we need to go... We, we need to be careful, and maybe it's only me, that a lot of times I bypass the prayer and I bypass the humble, and my flesh gets in the way, and I go in pride. I go with a chip on my shoulder, acting like I'm a whole bunch, you know, I'm a big big star, okay, but I'm not, and I'm going to get ahead of myself, but we need to be, unif- to be unified, we need to be hum- humble, we need to be meek, but we also, to be unified, we need to be long-suffering or patient. The, the idea here, and a lot of you already know the definitions of these, but It means to be long-tempered. It's the opposite of a short fuse, a person with a short fuse. Have you ever met those people? That anything, I mean, just one little thing. doesn't even really seem like a problem to you, but all of a sudden you do it and it's just, they're they're just messed up. They're belligerent. They're yelling and screaming and hollering. They don't have a long fuse. They're not long-tempered. You know, I'm thankful God's patient with me. And with dealing with people, I try to remember how God is patient with me. Even though I think I changed overnight when I got saved, I didn't. And God is still working on me. And welcome to Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. You didn't change overnight either. I know that wasn't real encouraging, but it's the truth. We didn't change overnight. God's still working on all of us. And there's times where we have to give, and I'm going to get ahead of myself, we have to give people room to grow and room to understand God's word. We need to be patient with one another. While it is true that Christians ought to obey God's word and follow follow it, we need to be long-suffering and patient with them as they grow. It's not your responsibility, by the way, to change them. It's God's responsibility. And when we take God's responsibility out of His hand and start messing with it, things are going to go, go south real fast. These are all important. Compare Scripture with Scripture. To be unified, not only do we need to be humble, meek, and patient, but we also need to be forbearing. Now, forbearance in the world has come to mean tolerance. And biblical forbearance is not what the world describes as tolerance. Tolerance to the world has come to mean throwing out all absolute moral standards, you know, what God's Word says, Is that what I mean? That's what I mean there. And not judging anyone for sin. Just, there's no standard. In other words, there's no right or wrong is what I'm talking about there when I say the word standard. There's no right or wrong. Just throw it all out the window and just let everybody do whatever they want. That's what tolerance in the world means. That's not biblical tolerance. Clearly, the Bible spells out absolute standards or, or doctrines of right and wrong and calls them and calls on us to lovingly confront and correct those who persist in evil and serious doctrinal error. But again, Ephesians 4 says we're to speak the truth in love. Biblical forbearance really means putting up with, to put up with. That's what the word means, to put up with. And it speaks, with, it speaks of our ability to be tolerant of others. Forbearance is the, let me say this, forbearance is the ability to, the ability to accept people just as they are, without wanting them to change to be worthy of your love. Let me say it again. Forbearance is the ability to accept people just as they are without wanting them to change to be worthy of your love. Christians are guilty of that. Now, that's a hard command, I'll have to say, because people are weird. People are odd. People are not always easy to put up with. Bless their hearts. Um, it's a hard thing for us to acknowledge it, but let me remind you, it's just as hard for you to, for them to put up with you. We all have our idiosyncrasies, we all have our quirks, we all have our tics, we all have our clicks, we all have our whatever you want to call it. And when we walk in pride, we, we will judge them if they're not just like us in every single area of our life. When we walk in pride, we will judge them when they're just the least bit different. Got to be careful of that pride. Remember what I said earlier? The pride will creep in. If we're going to have genuine unity in the church, forbearance is an absolute essential. And if we expect people to conform before we accept them, we've missed the whole point of grace. God never said, the Lord did not expect you to change before he loved you, called you and saved you. He just took you like you were and he changed your life and he worked a miracle in your life. Be careful not to allow yourself to say, well, if they do this, this and this, then I'll accept them. That's not the way the Lord works. And we shouldn't pretend to accept people and love people outwardly while inwardly resenting them for who they are and what they've said and what they do. There's a lot of Christians that might struggle with that, too. You pretend like you accept them. You pretend like you love them, and inwardly you resent them. That's not right either. Remember that pendulum? <laughs> not good to swing that. We need that balance. We need the Holy Spirit. Genuine forbearance makes allowances for faults and failures of others, for different personalities, abilities, and temperaments. Genuine forbearance speaks of, of positive love even to those who irritate disturb us and embarrass us. To be unified we don't not well, not only do we need humility meekness patience and forbearance but lastly we need love. You know forbearance and love are, are really connected here look at verse 2 the latter part there forbearing one another in love. We are to be forbearing one another in love. This speaks of our passion for another for one another. The only way we will ever walk in true lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance is if we truly love one another like Christ loves us. And let me, you know, often love has to speak the truth, but love seeks the highest good of, another, of the other person. Often you have to speak the truth of love after praying and making sure you're right and, and it's the right time and the right place and all of those things. The Bible's very clear. Sometimes you have to, clearly speak on what the Bible is clear on. But even then, you still seek the highest good of that person. It prevents, here's what it prevents. It prevents forbearance from becoming indifference where we think or say, I don't care what you do, just leave me alone. The Bible talks about encouraging and building each other up. Part of that is sometimes having to to help each other out. But again, we have to be careful how we do it. If you see someone doing something that will lead them to spiritual harm, love cares enough to help them. Forbearance means that you wait, though, and pray for the right time, but love motivates you to get involved if the the other person will let you. And sometimes people aren't ready. Sometimes people aren't ready. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Pastor even talked about that how there's been times where he the Holy Spirit stopped him from talking to somebody about something, something clear in God's word. If you remember back a couple Sundays ago, and the Lord took care of it. The Lord worked in their heart. But sometimes that has to happen. But again, that pride, that flesh gets in there and goes, I'm just gonna, and then now we've caused problems. So to be unified, we must understand its importance. To be unified, we must, under, we must practice its qualities and just quickly and lastly, to put a to tie a bow on all of this, as we've come to say here, um, thirdly, to be unified, we must diligently seek to be unified. We must diligently seek or diligently work at it. Look at verse three, and I've already kind of touched on this: endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It takes work. Endeavoring means to be diligent, and diligence implies deliberate effort. Romans 14, 19 says, let us therefore follow after things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Unity won't happen automatically while we're passive. We can't be passive in this idea of unity. We must be active, working diligently at being unified with each other. And it talks about being unified in the bond of peace. Peace is a a blessed quality for the child of God. Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God, and as I already stated, Jesus Christ Himself is our peace. For He is our peace who hath made both one, and hath broke, broken down the middle wall of partition between us, Ephesians two fourteen. When He rules as the Lord of your life and as the Lord of my life, we will enjoy peace between each of us. Although true unity among believers already exists, because of the mighty work of the Holy Spirit through salvation, we must work hard to keep it. Harmonious and unified relationships in our homes. This is applicable. I know I applied most of this to the church, but this is really applicable in your marriage, in your family, anywhere. Harmonious relationships, unified relationships in our homes and our churches will not happen automatically. At some point, your feelings will get hurt or you will hurt someone else's feelings And there will be disagreements, sometimes over difficult issues. There will be personality clashes when someone gets on your nerves. There will be different preferences, sometimes over minor matters, but sometimes over important things. To resolve these problems, we must understand how important unity is to our Lord. He calls us to walk in a a manner worthy of our calling as saints. We must practice these qualities to preserve unity. We must be diligent through the problems in a godly manner. And let me remind you, this is not in my notes, but if you keep reading in in Ephesians, it talks about in verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. Also, be unified with the pastor. I'm gonna leave it there. Pray for him. Lift him up. Encourage him. He needs people to encourage him. He's our pastor. He prays, he seeks God's will. And if you believe he's our pastor, get behind him. And be unified. Because that's also where it goes wrong too. We get the big head and the prideful pride comes in and we think we know better than the pastor. We got to be careful. Now, he's a human being. Pastors are human beings, okay? not trying to make them superheroes that are perfect, but they are called of God and they fulfill a special calling. And I, and I, and I, I don't say that because I don't think you know that. I say that because many times in our flesh, we allow things to get us at odds with our pastor. And we can't. We've got to lift him up. We've got to pray for him. I hope that I've been a help to you, an encouragement to you, and the Lord knows my heart that I wanted, wanted to make sure I was preaching what, what God wanted me to say. I didn't want to go too far in any area or say anything I shouldn't. I wanted to just preach what God had laid in my heart, and I couldn't get this out of my heart. I kept praying, Lord, are you sure you want me to preach on that? I mean, Pastor DeGarmo has been preaching on that, you know, and I even asked Pastor DeGarmo, are you okay with just to not overstep my bounds? But God kept bringing me back to it. So I'm just trusting God had it for a reason. And I'm hoping that God can use it in your life as he's used it in my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Help us now as we go our separate ways. I pray that you'd bless our time fellowshipping with one another after church, Lord. And I do pray for our pastor as he's traveling back, that you'd encourage him and strengthen him, lift him up, give him wisdom, and and give him guidance as he continues to seek to uh, lead our church. I thank you for him. I thank you for the many people here tonight. Lord, I pray you'd bless us. Use your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.